Welcome back and welcome to the bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering the Immortal Iron Fist Annual Volume 1, number 1. Before we begin, if you haven't, I suggest going back and listening to the Beyond episode. That's bonus episode 8, as the spotlights on the Iron Fist and what it is and the way here section both lead up to this story following issue number 9 of the series. And I'm going to run through this issue without a spotlight or where are you section because they can both be found there. Told you those absolute points would come in handy. We've got me, we've got you, we've got... No further ado, we've got the Immortal Iron Fist annual number one, Men of a Certain Deadly Persuasion. Me and my best friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned. Look out, it's me and my friend Pete. We got a ton of credits on this one, as annuals often do. The writers, we've got two greats, Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction. On Pencils and Ink, we have Howard Chaikin, Dan Brereton, Angelina Kevich Djurjevic. On Colors, we have Edgar Delgado, Dan Brereton, Angelina Kevich Djurjevic. On Letters, we've got Natalie and Dane Lanfear. And the editors on this one are Alejandro Arbona and Warren Simons. The cover was drawn by Dan Brereton. Let's get into it. The cover of this comic is pretty cool. I remember first picking it up and wondering why Danny was wearing a trench coat and carrying two pistols before realizing this annual wasn't about him. Here we see Orson Randall, his yellow iron fist mask wrapping his head and eyes, a five o'clock shadow on his jaw, the strings of the mask curling out behind him. He's wearing a brown full-length leather trench coat, a green sweater with the mark of the dragon on it, green army pants, and a brown utility belt with at least three pouches I can see. With a yellow sash wrapped above the belt, its strings curving out stage left. I just noticed that the trench coat, judging from the fabric design on the inside of the jacket we can see, is a Burberry. The average price of a Burberry trench coat is $2,250, so Orson throws his weight and his money around. That's a nice jacket to run around in doing the martial arts. Man of affluence, he is. In his right hand, bent at the elbow, aimed at the sky, is a pistol. In his left, aimed at stage left, is another. Behind him, a beautiful woman who sort of resembles Mila Kunis, with flowing black hair and blue eyes, is standing with her right hand on his left shoulder as both of them stare stage left. She's wearing a black form-fitting dress with reddish pink flowers. It looks silk, it's a nice dress, and she has a pink flower in her hair. Behind them both in the background are demon heads with large circular maws and sharp pointed teeth, and the symbol of Kunlun made of red orange smoke. It's a solid cover. We turn the page. On page one, we have a singular panel of Danny Rand, current Iron Fist of this story, and his green costume, his signature mask and sash on his head and waist, the symbol of Kunlun yellow on his chest, his hands wrapped in tape and a couple of bandages placed around his left forearm and he's standing on a rooftop in New York at dusk in front of a water tower behind Orson Randall who is sitting on the edge of the roof, his head down, clad in all green, his Kunlun symbol is black on his chest and he's wearing gun holsters. His left foot is up at his chest and he's clutching his iron fist mask in his left hand. It's a gorgeous panel. Around this panel, above and below, we get a recap. Orphan billionaire Daniel Rand was raised in the mystical city of Kunlun and grew to become its champion. After defeating the dragon Shu Lao the Undying, Danny was granted extraordinary powers, enhancing his mastery of the martial arts and allowing him to achieve a superhuman level of strength, speed, and fighting prowess. Now Danny, a captain of industry, a hero on the run, and a member of the underground New Avengers, stands between the innocent and the unstoppable hordes of evil and wicked men as the immortal Iron Fist. Events in this annual take place after Immortal Iron Fist number 9, previously in Immortal Iron Fist. Danny thought he knew all there was to know about being the Iron Fist, until he met another one. 
Before Danny, Orson Randall was Iron Fist, the immortal weapon of Kun Lun where he was born, raised, and trained after his inventor father crash-landed there in an experimental flying machine. But after witnessing the horrors of World War I, Orson was scarred and left Kun Lun and its violent ways behind. He descended into opium addiction and became a shell of his former self, never seen or heard from again, until an attempt on his life made him resurface and seek out his successor, Danny. From Orson, Danny learned there were six other mystical cities like Kun Lun and six other immortal weapons like him, and Orson had accidentally killed one. Danny also learned he'd be called upon to fight for Kun Lun in a great tournament between the cities, a bloody ritual Orson had hoped to escape. But Danny and Orson learned you can't run forever. Orson's past caught up to him, and the new weapon of Kun Z, Danny's longtime arch nemesis Davos, the Steel Serpent, killed Orson in revenge. Now, the great tournament has begun, and Danny, facing overwhelming odds, has already lost his first match. But a mysterious blue-eyed servant girl approached Danny, the daughter Orson never knew he had. She charged Danny with traveling to Earth and finding a man named Ernst Erskine, a journalist who first met Orson after World War I. This man knows the truth of Orson's entire life, this girl told Danny, and he must find him. And it seems that no matter how far Orson ran in his lifetime, adventure was never far behind. And we turn the page. Page two opens with Danny's back to us. He's wearing a stylish black button-up and brownish-gray tweed pants, and he's walking towards the arched iron gates of a red-roofed, brown brick estate. There are flowers planted, trees, bushes, lots of grass. It's very green. And Danny's thinking, My name is Danny Rand. I am incredibly rich. He walks through the gates with a small smile on his face, his top two buttons undone so that the head of the dragon pokes from beneath his shirt, as he continues his inner monologue. He thinks it's pretty great being the Iron Fist, and notes that his wealth is as much a part of him being the Iron Fist as, well, his Iron Fist. His hands in his pockets, he thinks he would have never found this villa here in the south of France without his enormous wealth because it doesn't show up on any map or in any directory. In the final panel, he walks past a headstone thinking some mysteries take an inordinate amount of wealth to uncover and thinks that if he doesn't get answers soon, his enemies will see to it that he's buried right along with them. Danny reaches the front door of the estate, a large wooden door with a lion's head knocker on it, so money is definitely on display here, and the door is opened immediately by a small old man wearing brown pants, a light brown sweater, a white shirt, and a green and red pinstripe tie. He's balding gracefully and has a full beard and mustache combo, all his hair white. In his left hand, he's gripping a cane. Before Danny can speak, the man introduces himself as Ernst Erskine and guesses who Danny is saying that the Iron Fist looks just like his father. So this guy knows Danny's father, Wendell. Danny, pulling the shades from his eyes in the next panel, says he's come to ask questions about his predecessor, the Iron Fist before him, Orson Randall. The next panel, we're staring through the red tent of a pair of Hydra binoculars. Hydra, if you recall, is a terrorist organization started in World War II and have been hunting Danny in this storyline since the beginning after he refused to build a train for their leader, Zhao, through one of their many front companies. Back to Scrolling along the bottom of these binoculars is the Hydra motto, cut off one head and two more shall take its place, hail Hydra. Through these binoculars, we see Erskine and Danny still at the front door of Erskine's home and realizing that Orson is dead, he says Danny is now the sole Iron Fist. In the next panel, we see three members of Hydra. They're clad in standard Hydra gear, full-bodied green suits with yellow gloves, green mask included, with red lenses covering their eyes. The Hydra agent on stage left is holding an M16 and smiling wickedly. The agent in the middle is staring through the binoculars we were looking through in the last panel. And the final one is wearing a set of headphones attached to a small microphone, eavesdropping on Daniel and Erskine's conversation. Danny's voice comes through his ears. Yes, sir. I'm the only Iron Fist now. May I come in? I have some questions for you. And the agent says, Identity confirmed. It's Rand. Move to second positions. Hail Hydra. 
Erskine and Danny enter the estate and walk through a living room with expensive chairs and carpets. Behind them, a young white woman in a purple blouse and black skirt is pushing an elderly woman with gray hair in a wheelchair, while in the foreground, another young white woman is pushing an elderly Asian man with white hair who's sporting a beautiful sequin light blue robe. Erskine says someone named Shadu died this week and a woman named Contessa has gone completely blind. He says as for him, his trick knee has returned after decades of being gone. He tells Danny that everyone in this estate is very old and believes magic has something to do with how long he's lived. But since the death of Orson Randall, people have begun falling apart. In the final panel, Erskine calls out to the woman in the purple blouse, requesting tea for two before telling Danny to sit, 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 take a load off, take it easy. The woman is in the foreground here wearing a strange smile. She has bright blue eyes giving me Lois Lane vibes. She goes off for the tea and Erskine speaks through the ether to Orson saying he hopes the man was finally able to stop running. We get a Got Milk ad here with Masi Oka. I'm not sure if anyone is listening who remembers the great television show Heroes. Masi Oka played Hero, a guy who could stop time, bend time, travel through time eventually. It was a great show for the first two or three seasons. Then it got very, very convoluted. Hayden Panettiere was in it. It was a great show. It was one of my favorite shows. Danny takes a seat in the parlor to open page five and looking up at Erskine says Orson was able to stop running and that he died a hero if it means anything. The camera zooms in tight on Erskine as he says, It does. He would have liked that. Better to die on his feet than flat on his back, chasing that damn dragon. So now then, you have questions, yes? So chasing the dragon is a Chinese expression that alludes to opium and heroin use, and we know Orson Randall was a fan of both drugs. In response to Erskine asking if Danny has questions, Danny says a few million give or take as Lois pours some tea in the background. His left hand over his right fist, Erskine replies, I would imagine so. Well, before I begin to answer them, correct my assumptions if they are wrong. If Orson is dead, and if you've come to find us... Page 6 opens to Erskine saying he imagines Danny came to read his life's work as the two men sip tea. His life's work, an autobiography of Orson Randall. He says Danny must also be here because he's being hunted, and finally, because Danny's life is an inescapable danger. The next panel, we see Danny wearing a creepy grin, the teacup near his lips, as he says, Well, when you put it like that, it sounds like I'm in trouble. I have to admit I'm not the biggest fan of Chaikin's art, and I think for me this may be the reason why. He's great at telling the story through art, but sometimes people's facial expressions get strange and cartoony and almost surreal. I saw this in a Captain America comic book that he drew once. It consistently slips sometimes, I guess is what I'm saying. It doesn't happen often, but does seem to happen in the strangest of moments and pulls me out of the story like right now. Taking nothing away from him, please believe me, I couldn't hold his pencils. Back to the next panel, we're back outside of the house as the Hydra agents approach, while inside, Erskine tells Danny it's good he can keep his sense of humor even through this darkness. In the final panel, the camera zooms in on Erskine's face as he says things are about to get much darker and adds, Let me tell you of the day that our days became numbered as well. And this is a beautiful panel. You can see the little flash of worry in Erskine's eyes as he stares through his horn-rimmed glasses, his forehead wrinkles curving towards his bushy white eyebrows. Seven opens to a caption box. 1928, nestled deep in the hidden crevices of Himalaya, in some godforsaken ice held between the East Rongbuk Glacier and Changxi, looks the legendary adventurers club, known only to men of a certain deadly persuasion. Men like Orson Randall and the Lightning Lords of Nepal, who tonight were destined to tangle in a way most ungentlemanly. And we're outside in the Himalayas now, snow falling and wind blowing above a small village. There are horse-drawn carriages outside of what looks like a traditional Chinese building. There's a red prop plane parked behind them, a red and gold hot air balloon, and that's real gold to be sure, behind that, and a white and gold blimp with fins on its propeller end. This is the greatest parking spot of all time. All these adventurers in the Adventure Club clearly are people of affluence. We move inside the club in the next panel where Chinese lancers are hanging casting a warm orange glow. In the background, there are two men drinking at a bar. 
while a barkeep stands there. But in the foreground, three Asian men sit talking, all wearing black shirts with white fur wrapping their collars. All three have long hair. The guy stage right has his in a high ponytail with two long dangle bangs wrapped in gold. The guy in the middle has his long hair out and laid, gray streaks running down both sides of his face, a full goatee and gray hair, longer in length on his chin. The final man, stage left, is wearing his hair in a ponytail, keeping it simple and has a full Manchu-styled mustache. All three men have great eyebrow action working. They're talking in an unknown language denoted by two angle brackets on both sides of the words. High ponytail says the man at the bar is who they think it is, and he's notified their mistress. Gray and laid with the full beard agrees, saying that's the man who killed their father and stole his favorite horse. And the final brother with the full Manchu mustache says he bets the guy has it tied up outside to spite them. In the final panel, we see a much younger Erskine in a blue fur-lined coat. His hair is brown and so is his beard. This is 1928, and he's already at least in his early 30s. He's holding a coffee mug, steam wafting up from it, and looking over his shoulder. On stage right, sitting next to him, is Orson Randall. He's younger than we first meet him in the main story, but not by much in appearances. He's wearing a fur-lined coat as well and staring into the glass of brown water in his hand. Hennessy was established in 1765, so I know that's what Orson's sipping on. Erskine says the guys at the table behind him keep looking in Orson's direction and wringing their hands maniacally. But Orson isn't bothered. He says those men are the lightning lords of Nepal and maniacal is just what they do. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity, Infinity page. page! Just in time to see Erskine pushing his glasses up the bridge of his nose asking if it'd be amenable. Oh, he fancy, huh? If he interviewed them for the histories. But in the next panel, all three men are glaring with lightning shooting from their eyes and fingertips. So I'm guessing the answer is, Heather, no. In the next panel, Orson agrees with me. And downing his whiskey, his tongue licking the rim of his glass so he doesn't miss a drop, he says, oh, absolutely not. Fact is, I suspect they'll be trying to kill us soon. Just before the lightning lords start flipping tables and firing bolts of lightning in the final panel, barely missing Erskine who makes like lightning himself and bolts towards the door as lightning shoots past him, panic etched on his face. It is lightning everywhere. High Ponytail screams, Orson Randall, all of the powers you've pilfered from Kunlun cannot protect you now. Kicking a table out of his way and we got action. But first we got an ad. It's an above the influence ad and it'll just freak me out a little bit because I thought someone took ink and wrote inside of one of my comic books. I was about to go crazy. It's gonna be some iron fist swinging in this motherfucker. Pardon my French. Back to Orson, his hands pressed against the bar, tags the high ponytail lightning lord with a straight kick across the face to open page nine, sending him crashing into his brothers. It's a beautiful panel. He ducks beneath the lightning lord with the chew mustache who obliterates the bar with a lightning lord. No and popping up from his crouch in the next oh. panel, slams the lightning lord's head into the obliterated bar, screaming that they're the ones who need protection. We get a great panel to open page 10, a long vertical of Orson looking over his shoulder and down on the beaten lightning lords as Erskine watches in the background. Reaching into his coat pocket, Orson posts his Iron Fist mask saying that beating was from him specifically and that he didn't even have to bring Kun Loon into it. He wraps his face in the yellow mask in the next panel, pulling the strings tight, saying he always figured there were two Lightning Lords, too many. I think he's gonna kill these guys. I mean, at least two of them. He continues his monologue into the next panel saying they're redundant, but doesn't notice the Lightning Lord hand reaching for his ankle. Erskine screams for him to look out, but it's too late. The Lord with his hair down grabs Orson's calf muscle in the final panel and sends a shock of electricity surging through the Iron Fist. The Lord didn't hold back either. He's hitting Orson with so much electricity, a bolt is flying from the man's mouth. It's a gorgeous final panel. They're working right now. 
Page 11 opens to turn tables as Orson is curled in a fetal position on the wooden floor of the Adventurers Club as the Lightning Lords surround him, leering and shocking him with electricity. High Ponytail says, You will wish you killed us a thousand times over when we unfurl our flag of many agonies around you. Hair down, sparks crackling from his fingers adds, Your ancestors will weep from the white man's hell they surely languish in as we, before being interrupted off panel. The Lightning Lords, aka the Princes of Purple Pros. In the next panel, we get a look at who silenced the Princes of Purple Pros, and it's none other than the Bride of the Nine Spiders. She's an Asian woman with pale skin, high arcing eyebrows, full cherry red lips, and heavy red eyeshadow on her eyes, and long flowing black hair. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman. I love how the Bride of the Nine Spiders is drawn. She's always drawn beautifully. She's wearing a red tiara, a red and gold corset with matching underwear beneath a sheer white dress with white spiders spinning webs all through it and I'm thinking the spiders are weaving the sheer white dress. It's gorgeous to look at. She orders the lightning lords to be silent and says if they don't, her kindness towards them will come to a quick end. I've seen the bride of the nine spiders do damage and I'm sure the lords have too because they fall silent right away. Orson, his body smoking from the electricity he was just shocked with, pushes up from the floor and on one knee says he should have known it was her to open page 12. With the Lightning Lord still behind her putting on a spark show, the Bride of the Nine Spider says there's a bounty on Orson's head and her being the one to find him is just good fortune, as hundreds of white spiders crawl from her silk dress. She asks if Orson surrenders, hoping he doesn't so she can finally face him in combat. In the final panel, we see Erskine scribbling diligently in his diary, recording this moment, as Orson replies from off panel, and he says, I didn't fight you in the heart of heaven, and I surely won't fight you here. I decline your offer of combat. I am nobody's immortal weapon. Not anymore. He braces on the bar to get to his feet, holding his head as the bride addresses him from behind to open page 13. The bride says, I knew you were a coward, and cowards are unworthy of my most divine punishments. Lightning lords, destroy this cowardly insect. And Erskine's got enough notes. He knows whatever's about to go down ain't gonna be good, so he heads towards the door. As the lightning lords place their hands side by side, so in sync that they're finishing each other's sentences. Worry not, mistress. Killing cowards is a bit of a pastime for. There is a flash of light as the three merge together into one large being composed of lightning, calling himself Super Lightning Lord, the electric demon of Manas Lu. Towering over Orson at 10 feet tall and glowing white hot in the final panel, we get a close up of Orson and he says the only thing he can in a moment like this, my God. Before he zapped with a massive bolt of lightning and sent flying through the front window of the Adventurers Club on page 14. He crash lands into the snow outside in front of the club as Erskine, the hero Orson needs in the moment, rides up on a beautiful white horse. It looks like Arwen's horse in the first Lord of the Rings movie, majestic, strong, and swift. He reaches out to grab Orson's hand, pulling him from the ground as another giant lightning bolt strikes the spot Orson was laying in. They are trying to fry Orson. Super Lightning Lord flies from the Adventurers Club screaming, No! My horse! as Erskine and Orson ride off into the night, and we get a caption box. The last time your humble narrator would take such a dramatically active role in the life and times and adventures of Orson Randall. His body, covered with burns bright like fresh strawberries and racked with untold agonies, would repair itself by focusing his purest chi inward on the inner wheels of healing. Randall first learned this technique by reading of Bei Bang Win, the first Iron Fist, to travel to the Dark Continent. And we get a tribute page from Mike Waringo, famed Fantastic Four artist, 1963 to 2007. Beneath the picture, it's a picture of the Fantastic Four. They're all waving at him as he's holding a giant pencil over his left shoulder, and he's waving back, looking back. Beneath Mike Waringo, 1963 to 2007, it says a child in spirit 
A Lifetime of Imagination. Mike Waringo, thank you for your contribution to the world of comic books through the ether. It wouldn't be what it is without you. We shift back to the present, and now Danny and Erskine are having red wine on a patio at dusk. In the foreground, Lois is spilling a white powder from a ring on her hand into a glass of wine, looking out of the corner of her eye at the two men. I don't know what that powder is, but I'm betting it's nothing good. Erskine says after that moment, he and Orson were stuck together. He says once the two knew they were being hunted, they couldn't continue to gallivant around on adventures. In the next panel, his head in profile, he says the bounty on their heads inspire them to act. The perspective shifts back to the green-suited Hydra agents. The one with the binoculars holds up a hand to his cohorts who are moving towards Danny. They're about to make their move. In the final panel, the camera pulls in tight on Erskine's blue eyes behind his horn-rimmed glasses as he says the hunted, he and Orson decided to become the hunters. Smiling to open page 16, he says they began building a network, a confederacy of misfits, a family. Danny, smiling, his hand on his chin, thinking about Luke Cage and the daughters of the dragon, Colleen Wing and Misty Knight, his own confederacy of heroes, says he knows what Erskine means. Erskine raises his wine glass in a toast to family, saying, Well, here's to family. Here's to saying when I die, well, by God, we will not die alone. That's a good toast. 17 opens to a caption box narrated by Erskine. New York City, a gilded city for a gilded age, and one replete with many a honey trap for a man, let alone a man of such exotic appetites as Orson Randall, pursued around the world by an ever-increasing array of wicked foes with an ever-increasing array of wicked abilities, Randall and the Confederates of the Curious found themselves in Harlem, where the music was hot and the women were hotter. And we get Orson in action, leaping from the ledge of a rooftop, his arms above him to a building beneath him as bullets whiz by him from that upper ledge. The sun hangs low and large in the background. Pigeons are flying in all directions. Fabrics are hanging from clotheslines. There's a water tower on a roof. You know it ain't New York if it's not. It's a gorgeous panel. And we see five Asian women in silk dresses, pink, red, lime green, burgundy, more lime green, each holding a Tommy gun. The woman in the lead has a theater-length cigarette holder in her mouth. The one in the rear, a cigar. All five are letting those things go. They're screaming at Orson in Chinese as they do. Orson, in flight, pauses at the head of the rooftop he's running across, and having no more room and no more buildings, he turns to face his pursuers. In the next panel, the apparent leader of the woman repeats their taunts in English, saying the ninefold daughters of Tao shall have their revenge, and Orson is going to die alone. Orson, glancing over his shoulder, says he doesn't doubt he'll die someday, and raises his fist. On page 18, he opens his hands and continues saying, who said anything about alone though? As a giant golden blimp fills the sky above the rooftop. Flying the ship, we see none other than Wendell Rand, father of Danny Rand, the current immortal Iron Fist. And apart from his brown hair to Danny's blonde, he's the spitting image of his son. He has on a red leather jacket and old school pilot's goggles on his forehead. Beside him, we see a red haired white guy with a bandage on his cheek and an A t-shirt. And he's screaming at Wendell that he's pulled up too close. And Wendell's like, I got this chores. The guy's name is Chores. Wendell continues, I'm the best pilot in five boroughs. But there aren't too many pilots in the five boroughs, so it's a strange humble brag. There are 92 pilots designated as from New York right now, so I know there couldn't have been that many then. If he said he was the best pilot in all of Florida or Texas or California, then he'd be talking because those are flyout states with the most pilots in the country living and working from there. In the next panel, we see a man in a black vest and pants, a purple bow tie, and a cape around his neck. Purple, of course, shades of Mysterio, held on his neck by a golden clasp with a red ruby at its center. On his head, he has a turban with a red jewel at its center. He has a great mustache as well. 
at the center of his lips. He's very censored. This is Shadow the Shady, and he says that even he finds the harem harlots of Harlem to be a handful because his superpower is alliteration. And behind him, dressed as a husky Indiana Jones, Erskine is holding a little black dog wearing sunglasses barking madly that this group has named, of course, Barco. In the final panel, Orson, his iron fist mask wrapping his head, is staring over his shoulder smiling as he says, Contessa, you wanna show your hand? 19 opens to the ninefold daughters, all grinning with their Tommy guns, as the leader pulls her theater cigarette from her mouth and asks who's this Contessa the Iron Fist is praying to, before taunting him, saying she can't help him now. But she's wrong. The woman from the cover of this annual? That's Contessa. And her black hair? A wig to hide amongst the ninefold daughters. She pulls it off, standing behind the woman, her Tommy gun raised, saying, on the contrary, darling, before unloading on the group screaming that Contessa Vera Vidal hears the pleas of all sinners and that it makes the best party gossip, shooting the woman directly in front of her square in the chest. She is point blank range. Orson's posse descend on the women in the next panel, taking care of them easily as Orson, his hands glowing with the iron fist chi, blocks a bullet shot from the leading daughter's Tommy gun. He says drinks are gonna be at Jack and Charlie's 21 if they survive. The 21 Club was a real bar and prohibition era speakeasy in New York City, founded by cousins Jack Friendlier and Charlie Burns in 1922. And its popularity carried into 2020 until it shut down due to the scourge on our earth, COVID-19. The owners now say they won't reopen until they find a new purpose and direction for the classic establishment. When it does reopen, take note, you are not allowed inside the 21 Club without a jacket and jeans are not allowed. All right, suit up. You throw that blazer on. Back to Orson likes to drink that one, and apparently his gang does too. Twenty opens with Orson backhanding a daughter with an iron-fisted slap as another creeps behind him. Tommy Gun raised, screaming his death will be to avenge her grandfather, the Lightning Lord. Orson's still beefing with Lightning Lord Familia, and they may have the drop on him because he doesn't see the woman behind him with the Tommy Gun despite her mini monologue about her grandfather. But no worries. Erskine pulls a revolver from his jacket in the next panel. Did I say no worries? You did. I mean, worry a little. Erskine is shaky with the revolver and begins flop sweating as he takes aim, stuttering that he can't fire. But Wendell's a shooter shooter, and he's there to help. He grabs Erskine's hand and screaming, shoot if you're gonna shoot already, forces Erskine to pull the trigger in the final panel. The bullet rips through the stomach of the ninefold daughter leader to open page 21, and Green erupts from the wound. She mutters out, bastard, before collapsing. Orson, looking over his shoulder in the next panel, shouts, nice work, thanks, as Shadu subdues another daughter. Chorus isn't having as much luck. One of the daughters has pinned him down on the floor, wrenching his arm, and nobody helps him. There's never any respect for gingers of the world. This is disgraceful. Somebody get that woman off that man. In the final panel, Wendell with Erskine wiping the flop sweat from his forehead behind him, is smiling with the gun in hand from the airship and says, they've got Orson covered with a thumbs up and winning smile. 22 opens with Shadu bent over a dead ninefold daughter holding up a piece of paper. He shouts at Orson that he's got the will and Orson, followed by his gang, leaps onto his zeppelin, telling everyone to fall back before their enemies can reload. In the final panel, the Confederacy are all at the front of the airship as Wendell pilots while Orson stands to the left of him. Wendell says he doesn't understand why all this fuss was made over a small piece of paper, and Orson says, it's my will, boy. If anything ever happens to me, you'll all be taken care of. Erskine talks through a caption box to close the page. While the significance of legal documents eluded Orson's 15-year-old ward, the rest of us knew as much as he pretended, that boy meant the world to him. And indeed, after Randall's final disappearance, young Wendell would find himself one of the world's richest men. 
23 opens with fire reflecting out of Erskine's eyes as he pokes logs on a roaring fire he's created in the fireplace as he tells Danny that this is where his family's fortune came from. When Orson disappeared, he left everything to Wendell. Erskine, kneeling down by the fire, says despite what he'd been through with Orson, he believed the man was an inveterate liar who, because of his addictions, didn't have trustworthiness. In the foreground, Lois listens to him talk, watching Danny the whole time. And Danny is knocked out. Next panel, he's got his right hand propping up his face as he snores softly before being woken with a loud clap and the call of his name from Erskine. On 24, Erskine leaning over Danny and smiling says the loud star seems to be every Iron Fist's weakness. He says if he had a dollar for every time he scared Orson this way, he'd be as rich as Danny. Danny's worth $9 billion. Erskine must have made Orson twitch. Danny stands and placing a hand on either side of his head says he may be drunk and asks for coffee. Erskine tells Lois and she walks off to bring the man some coffee. Erskine says Orson was always falling to sleep as well, but he was a lazy junkie. He says despite this, they were never without funds. That Orson's father's estate was so vast, it just grew on its own. He says when Orson found out how his father obtained so much wealth, it broke his heart again. 25 opens to the outside of a steam engine chugging through a mountainside beneath a full moon. Erskine speaks through a caption box. It is 1963 and I am dying. The tuberculosis refuses to remit. I'm going to die on top of a train racing through Manchuria. It's Orson's idea, of course. He insists we can freeze the damn disease out of my lungs. I refuse to allow the only mark of my time on this world to be a corpse frozen solid and an incomplete biography of either a hero or a madman. As such, I have taken control of the only part of my situation I can control. In the next panel, he is on top of the train, his revolver pressed beneath his chin. As he says his Hail Marys, but before he can pull the trigger, Orson spots him and smacks the gun away from his chin, saying no friend of his is going to take the coward's way out. He grabs Erskine by both wrists and screams into his face. You have to finish the treatment. This freeze can cure you. And if it can't, then, well, damn it, I know a place. I'm taking you there. On 26, he pulls his friend close, hugging him, telling him to hold on. But a sound from behind him makes him turn, and he sees three Hydra agents climbing to the hood of the train. We get a great panel of him clenching his teeth, bathed in a crimson glow, as he says, son of a, before leaping up and rushing the length of the train, his iron fist on fire on his left hand. The closest Hydra member, wielding a sword, screams, Hail Hydra. The one behind him screams, Hail Zhao. In the final panel, the third starts to scream, Hail whoever, but he's cut off by the iron fist rammed beneath his jaw, sending blood flying. 27, my favorite number and one I don't reach often doing these episodes, opens to Orson going to work on top of the train. He buries his foot into the Hydra agent, rushing at him from behind with a sidekick, and fully extending his body, cracks the Hydra agent in front of him with a right hook. Grabbing a Hydra agent beneath each arm, he tells Erskine he can't ever give up, no matter what the odds. Body strewn all around him in the final panel with Hydra agents bailing from the train. He says if you don't stop fighting, sooner or later, you'll be the only guy left. On 28, the two men jump from the top of the train at their stop as Erskine tells Orson that the best years of his life were spent following the man around like a puppy. He asks Orson where they are in the next panel as a village glows in the distance from the lights of its houses. Orson says someone on the train had a coin he recognized and can only be found in a few places on earth one of them being here. When Erskine asks what coin, Orson shows him a golden coin about the size of an American silver dollar with the symbol of Kung Moon on it. He says the coin was minted a thousand years ago and that the village they're in now, having reached it between panels, has elders who trade with the ancient city every few decades. He goes on to say if Zhao's goons are here, he wants to know why. 29 opens to a man in monk's robes holding up a lantern in Orson and Erskine's direction. Orson recognizes him immediately as Wu An, the heir to the throne of Kung Moon, where of course Orson trained to be the Iron Fist. 
The ancient city only enters the mortal plane once every decade, so Orson knows it's impossible for Ruan to be here. He runs off to follow the man in the next panel, screaming he's going to see how and why Ruan is here, and tracks the man to the basement of a building where a glowing blue machine is set up. Erskine asks what it is, and Orson says a portal, and judging from the design, it was built by his father. The camera pulls in tight on Orson's face, and he's pissed. He says all those years his father had a way back and just left him there. He says that's how his father got his fortune. Ruan bribed him with treasure to keep it all a secret. That's deep. 30 opens to two Hydra agents having followed Orson and finding the portal. They say they have to tell Zhao and she'll reward them richly. But that implies they're going to live to tell him. Orson's not letting that happen. He cracks the neck of the first Hydra agent with an iron-fisted judo chop to the front of the throat and snaps the spine of the other at the neck with another iron-fisted judo chop. Orson, his fist ablaze in the next panel, blood and bodies at his feet, is asked by Erskine what they're going to do. Orson replies they're going to do what they always do, run. Erskine has a capture box to close the page. And as was Orson's usual luck, we outran those who would chase us. Though I confess, I hacked up half a lung or so during the escape. We're back with Erskine in front of the fire on 31 as he says eventually, Orson healed him with his dragon chi and went on to heal all his friends, blessing them with long life in the process. Erskine was already in his 30s in the 1920s, and this story is taking place in 2007, so he's at least 115 years old. That's some cheat. Erskine, in front of the fire as Danny rubs his eyes on the couch, continues. He says they stopped Zhao from finding out about the portal, but he or someone in his family would be back, because they always come back. Danny, his pointer finger and thumb of his left hand pinching the corners of his eye, says, Of course they come back. Evil never learns anything. That's what keeps it evil. In fact, Zhao's minions are with us now. Erskine is in shock, and he asks, where? Danny says he's been poisoned to open page 32 by none other than the Lois Lane lookalike before standing and telling Erskine to dive right now. Erskine does, and Danny springs from his chair, activating the iron fist with his left hand. He swipes at the air as the window behind the chair cracks, and glass bursts inward. Erskine screams, my lord! And Danny, holding up the bullet, says, nice try. Now it's his turn. He bursts through the window into the trio of Hydra agents fearlessly as the one with the M16 screams, Hail Hydra. 33, we got action. Danny tackles the unarmed Hydra agent first, thinking his chi burned the poison from his system, and now he feels reborn. The Hydra agent with the headphones throws a roundhouse kick into the next panel that Danny blocks with his elbow, and ramming his palm into headphones' nosebleed adds not only reborn, unstoppable. He thinks, Sergeant Genius manages to throw the switch to full auto and unloads. An M16 agent, his teeth clench, lets the bullets fly in the final panel. 34, Danny is putting the full power of the Iron Fist to work as he dodges the bullets, closing the distance between himself and the final standing Hydra agent with the M16. One roundhouse kick later, and all Hydra agents are down, but Danny doesn't have time to celebrate. A shot rings out from the second story of the estate, and Danny remembers that Erskine's alone with the nurse. He races through the house and up the stairs, willing himself to go faster. Reaching the room where the gun was fired, he sees two elderly people laying in separate beds, Erskine standing in front of them, his revolver still smoking as Lois lays on the floor, a pool of blood leaking from her. Erskine says he had to do it because she was trying to smother chores. Chores, never getting a break. Danny, his teeth clenched in a panel that makes me cringe a little, asks Erskine if that's the same gun from way back when, and if that's the same chores from way back when. Erskine says, I told you we live a long time, and gesturing to the two people in the beds behind them, introduces them to Danny as Chores McGillicuddy and the Contessa Vera Vidal. Chores asks if the young man in the room with them is Wendell, and Danny says, no, I'm his son. 36 opens to Danny and Erskine walking through the tea room again. Danny says he's pressed for time, and Erskine says, I get it, you're a busy man. Fighting Hydra makes you way past busy enough. Let me show you the library. Danny, a smile on his face, 
into the library on page 37 monologue. Ernst wasn't kidding. There are bound books of raw manuscript pages, whole longhand journals, and handwritten notes organized by some arcane system I bet Ernst doesn't even recall. But it doesn't matter. I've been left alone in an entire library dedicated to the life and times of Orson Randall. He takes a seat cross-legged on the floor of the library and begins reading, still thinking to himself. While upstairs, Erskine, still with chores and Contessa, is holding a green book in his hands. Chores asks which story they're going to hear tonight, and Contessa asks what all that racket was downstairs. Erskine sits down telling her it was just a mess that was cleaned up and for her not to worry, before sitting down and starting a story of their glory days with the age-old Once Upon a Time. And we're out! Orson Randall is everything wrong with the Iron Fist character taken up to 10. Not only did he run with an ancient power, he did nothing with it to better the world and instead use it for his own self-interest. I recently found out Danny Rand will not be the Iron Fist any longer in the near future. And you know he's one of my top five heroes, so that's a tough blow to take. But I get it. Representation matters. And his character, as I said in the Beyond bonus episode, could be considered problematic for a host of reasons. I don't agree because of his storied history, but tales like this make the appropriation glaring. Whoever comes next wielding the deadly Iron Fist of Kun Loon, I'm excited to see because if you know me, you know I love a good hands team hero. I kind of hope it's a woman. There aren't many top tier woman hands team fighters in the MCU, so here's to hoping. Who do you think should be the next Iron Fist? Let me know in the comments. Thank you so much for being a patron. Thank you so much more for listening. It's because of you I get to do this and I never take that for granted. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care. Please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.